Welcome to the Millennial Politics Podcast. I'm your host, Jordan Valerie. My pronouns are she, her, hers. And today I'm joined by Candace Bond, Policy Counsel for Reproductive Rights, Health and Justice at the National LGBTQ Task Force for a very special Pride Month episode of the podcast. Thanks for coming on to the show. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, of course. Now, to our listeners, we are recording this on June 28th, so just be aware that that's the context we're talking in. Now, Candace, there's been a lot going on with the nation's highest court recently. Can you guide us through what exactly is happening and why it matters? Yeah, sure. And I also wanted to say that my pronouns are she, her pronouns as well. And to thank you again for having me. Super excited to talk about this. Um, well, <laughs> on June 28th, the Supreme Court outlook is dismal. Um, we this week has been rough. This month really has been rough of you know a lot of terrible decisions in a lot of different issue areas and movement areas. Um, but for the progressive field writ large, it's just been pretty bad. And yesterday on June 27th, we found out that Kennedy is going to be stepping down and retiring. Um, effective at the end of July. So that is another just like extra piece of bad news um, because it will spark a whole new conversation around nomination and confirmation of the next Supreme Court justice. So it's just, it's been rough. It's been, it's been a a dumpster fire, (laughs) if you will. To say the least. Yes, it's been, it's been, I mean, it was already bad, like just the rulings themselves were bad. And I think um, Kennedy stepping down is just the kind of the extra, it's like the the kerosene on the, fi- the fire, just to make it a little bit bigger. Yeah. Could you talk to us a little bit about the rulings? There have been some really hard blows to labor, to LGBTQ folks, to ending racial and partisan gerrymandering. What exactly were the major decisions? What are the effects? Yeah, so um, starting really with Masterpiece, um, Masterpiece Cake Shop is definitely the decision that the task force, the National LGBTQ Task Force, was most involved in, but we were also involved in many other cases. But I'll just start with Masterpiece. Um, So really, the ruling in that case, um, which was a 7-2 to ruling, meaning that seven justices cited for this decision and two um, dissented. And the ruling basically said that the baker in the case, um, his religious views were not taken seriously enough by the Colorado Commission that was in charge of overseeing the initial complaint in this case, which was filed by the gay couple trying to find a wedding cake. Um, trying to, you know, get a wedding cake for their wedding. They went to the baker's cake shop and the baker said, I'm sorry, I cannot uh, serve you because I don't serve LGBTQ folks because I don't believe that your marriage um, is real and valid and it goes against my religious beliefs. So I'm not going to sell you a cake. The couple then filed a complaint as they were supposed to um, with the Colorado Civil Rights Commission under the Colorado Anti-Discrimination Act. And the commission agreed with the couple and said that it was wrong for this baker to say that his religious beliefs um, were, were were able to really chip away at 
a clear non-discrimination protection in Colorado law. Um, that case was appealed um, and appealed again and ended up at the Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court overturned that decision, saying that the baker was in the right, basically, um, but only in the right because the Colorado Commission did not give him a fair and neutral um, kind of like didn't hear his argument fairly and neutrally. So it was really, it's a really convoluted decision. It's not like a black or white decision. There was no like clear winner, no clear loser, um, which is important because even though the case did end up just being kind of decided in favor of the baker, it wasn't decided in favor of the baker in the way that our opposition, that conservative religious folks um, wanted either um, because the entire opinion written by Kennedy himself was really focused on this Colorado commission and how the procedure was wrong and how they didn't give him a fair trial. Um, so they did the court, the Supreme court did not say that LGBTQ folks shouldn't be protected. Um, and that a non-discrimination bill protecting them is wrong. They did not strike down the Colorado bill. Um, none of that, was was said. So that's really important to remember that the law itself has not changed. Um, they just really had concern with this one particular procedural move made by a particular court in a particular state. Um, so it's not a sweeping religious exemption. It's not invalidation of sexual orientation or gender identity, um, non-discrimination. So it was really specific. So what Florida congressional candidate Lauren Baer told me is that the kind of narrowness of this is likely to open up the possibility of other cases where anti-LGBTQ discrimination will be argued on these narrow grounds because it did not explicitly affirm LGBTQ rights. Would you agree with that? I think anything's possible. Like, to be honest, I mean... I think that our opposition is fierce and they're staunch and they're gonna try every possible situation and scenario to chip away at non-discrimination protections that are already in law and to prevent non-discrimination protections from becoming law. So do I think that they would try to file a case based on the narrowness of this decision? Sure. But are they going to be successful? That really just depends on a lot of other factors. Yes, let, let's hear about other cases. So um, another case that we're disappointed about is the Ohio voter purge case. As many listeners probably heard, um, the voting rights democracy world is reeling right now because the Supreme Court um, pretty much upheld an Ohio statute that said that you can purge people from polls if they haven't voted in a certain amount of time. Which, you know, is really going to affect the people that we know it's going to affect. It's going to affect LGBTQ folks. It's going to affect poor people. It's going to affect people that move a lot. It's going to affect a lot of people um, who should have access to voting. And that is something that I worry other states are really going to try, even more so than Masterpiece. Like, I'm really more worried about 
the voter purges that we're going to see across the country and state, you know, statewide voter purges is something that we're really concerned about here at the task force. So that's one thing. Um, of course, yesterday, um, which was the last day of session on June 27th, the court decided the Janus case, which is a um, case really focused on labor unions and unions and um, bargaining unions and whether everyone can receive benefit of the union, even if you're not paying into the union. And the court said, yeah. So basically, um, you know, dismantling a lot of the power that unions have had in our country for the last 50 years. Um, a lot of the a lot of the union rights and and rights that we have as workers, whether we're in the private sector or the public sector or for the or work for the government, a lot of those really mainstream rules were decided because unions really fought for them for our five day work week, for, you know, a 40 hour work week, for um, procedures like HR procedures to protect um, employer employer ease from getting undeservingly fired for a job for no reason without cause. So unions really are the like backbone of the working class and the dismantling of unions is really going to be harmful for LGBTQ folks. And we're really concerned about that one. I see like all of these cases as being bad for LGBTQ folks, not just the masterpiece case. Um, and then finally, of course, the Muslim ban case um, is really heart-wrenching, especially in the moment that we're in um, with families being separated at the border and, you know, kids just really being ripped away from their their parents and their families. It's so devastating already what's happening from an administration and an administrative um, procedure, but to have the Supreme Court as, like, the second huge governing body be like, you know what, yeah, we can ban Muslims. We can ban these these countries from you know immigrating to the U.S. It's just so devastating. It just really shows like how much this administration, who appointed the justice, you know, who appointed Gorsuch and the five four swing, um, how much they just like don't care about the people of the world, the people of this country, the people who aren't you know, white, middle class, upper class, wealthy landowning men. Um, I think that's just so clear. And it's, I think it's heartbreaking for a lot of people. I'm personally not shocked by it. I'm just, just upset that it's the reality that we're living in. So Gorsuch has been really key in the Supreme Court decisions that serve as an assault on civil rights and liberties. For folks who don't know, how did he end up on the court? Oh, gosh. Oh, <laughs> it's quite a gosh. story. Yeah. Oh, man, it brings me back. It was. It's like one of those moments where you're like, that was totally a nightmare, right? That didn't mm -hmm. actually happen. Um, so we have to go even farther back before Gorsuch even was a name and get and get back to Merrick Garland. And so Merrick Garland was the nominee um, by Obama and the Obama administration to be the next Supreme Court justice because, um, as many of you know, um, Scalia passed away suddenly during the last year of the Obama administration. So, you know, one would think that 
Obama would get to seat someone on the Supreme Court. And he nominated um, Merrick Garland. People were behind his nomination. And the Republican Senate was not having it. And the Republican Senate was like, we are not going to even hold a hearing on your candidate, President Obama, because we don't, do not want you to have as much power, um, a lasting power, as much power as a Supreme Court seat. We are not going to even give you a hearing, let alone a um, confirmation vote. And they dragged their feet. They said, we're going to wait till after the election. Um, and they did. They waited until after the election. And after the election, they, um, after Trump, unfortunately, on a dark day, won. Um, well, actually, wait, let's be clear. Trump did not actually win that election. Um, Hillary Clinton won the election. The Electoral College instead appointed Trump as president. So that's like a really important distinction. The popular vote was not for Trump. It was with Hillary Clinton. And as a black woman, 94% of us voted the right way and voted for Hillary Clinton. Have to say that every time I talk about this process. After the election happened and after Trump was, um, you know, his regime took effect in January of 2017, one of the first things he did was nominate a Supreme Court justice because there was a vacancy. And he nominated... Um, Gorsuch, and Gorsuch was not getting any Democratic support, really, in the Senate, because you need a majority vote in order to um, seat and confirm a Supreme Court justice. He wasn't going to get a, a, a vote, enough votes from people from a 60-vote threshold, which was the previous rule. He was, at the time, I believe there were 47 Dems and 53 Republicans, he wasn't going to get 60. So McConnell changed the rules. He completely changed the rules um, of how we elect Supreme Court justices in this country, which is so, so important to recognize that this one man as you know, his power as Senate Majority Leader changed the entire rules of how we vote Supreme Court justices into their seats at this in this country and those seats are lifelong seats and they're the most important decisions um they're the most important court the people will argue and i might agree that they're one of the most important they're the most important body of government because they're really supposed to be the last stop they're supposed to interpret everything that congress puts um, through Congress and everything the administration does. So they're supposed to be like the reasoners. They're supposed to be the people that have the most reason in our country and are supposed to be impartial. This is not the case. Instead, McConnell changed the rules, making it from 60 vote threshold to a 50 or simple majority, which would be technically 51 um, vote threshold to really confirmed Gorsuch and he did he just changed the rules everyone went along with it like the all of the Republicans went along with it Dems were fighting back hard um, Schumer's office was fighting hard but you know we were just we didn't have the numbers and they changed the rule and they um, confirmed Gorsuch who is super anti-LGBT, he's anti-repro, um, he has been on the record saying that he would overturn Roe, he's anti-civil rights, he's anti-environment, and this is the person who ended up on this, the Supreme, a seat on the Supreme Court for, you know, the rest of his life. As a 45-year-old person, that's a really young 
person to be nominated to a lifetime seat, considering, you know, justices are on the court until their 80s and 90s. And he has been the deciding factor in all of the cases that I just spoke about, except for Masterpiece, because Masterpiece was 7-2. But in the Janus case, in the Muslim ban case, in the Ohio case, like, he's been that deciding factor. And it's really become, like, a Republican, conservative, political Trump court. And it's so frustrating. And the biggest person to blame is McConnell. So there is so much I want to cover there. And I want to start with something I find quite notable, that three Democrats voted to confirm Gorsuch. Uh Now, three may not seem like a lot, but what really matters about that, at least in my eyes, is that these three senators have voted to confirm almost all of Trump's judicial nominees. Uh And they're not alone. Democrats, even some self-proclaimed progressives, have largely helped the GOP confirm Trump's nominees, even occasionally when enough Republican senators voted against them to have otherwise stopped the nominees from being confirmed. Uh-huh. Why is it that Democrats are enabling these judicial nominees? And why are Trump's judicial nominees, even outside of the Supreme Court, so dangerous? Yeah, so that's those some heavy questions. But to start with, um, the proclaimed progressives are just not progressives. They never have been. They never were. Saying you're a progressive doesn't make you a progressive. It's about your vote. It's about the policies that you support. And um, the three Dems that voted um, with the Republicans are moderates to, I mean, that's saying it nicely um, and have and aren't progressives. And which is something that's important to note, which is, you know, why so many Dems sitting Dems are being primaried by, you know, other newcomers and new people to running in any type of election because people are tired of, you know, so-called progressives making non, super non-progressive decisions. So it's really, I feel like people are getting smarter and we're looking at their vote. We're not looking at what they say. And I've lost what your second question was. No worries. Why, why are Trump's nominees, even if they're not on the Supreme Court, so dangerous anyways? Yeah, so they're dangerous because, first of all, they're lifetime appoint- appointments. Like, a lifetime appointment is what it sounds like. It's a lifetime appointment. Um, so you can step down, but you there is no way that you can actually be, you know, removed from those seats, which is really important. And... Um, the courts really are the last stop that we have in our democracy to say whether a piece of legislation, you know, statewide or state rule is constitutional or not. If it's in line with the state constitution, if it's in line um, with the moral dignity of this country, it's really, really important. And once you get enough, um, judicial nominees confirmed that are going to be anti all of the things that we care about, anti-civil rights, anti-social justice, then it's going to be a really, really difficult world to be able to get, you know, legal justice in. And that is the point of the courts. Um, And so it's really important to be paying attention to the judicial nomination fight in all of the various state and federal courts across the country, because um, Trump is like nominating these these people at a really fast rate compared to other 
um, presidents in the past because he knows how important these seats are and how important it is to stack your courts, um, especially federal courts, especially, you know, your appellate courts, all the way to district courts. It's really important to um, make sure that even when the Trump administration is far over, there will still be people who have been appointed by by the Trump administration who will still remain and will still be making those Trumpian decisions um, in their specific realm of court system, which is terrifying. <laughs> yeah, I would I would agree with that. So that begs the question, what are we as non-politicians, as private citizens, supposed to do to oppose another Gorsuch, especially in the face of the 2018 midterms? Yeah, so, I mean, I think that the number one thing that people can and should be doing is voting because in, in talking to your member of Congress and, you know, holding the line, making sure that Dems, especially Dems who may have voted for Gorsuch, if you're a person in that state, really calling up your member and being like, we, you, you cannot vote for this person. We have to hold the line. It's, I think it's a great strategy to, you know, make them wait until the midterms are over, until democracy decides who's in power before we, um, nominate, well, well, we can't really stop the nomination, but before we confirm the process and, and hold hearings and all of that, um, I think it's just so important to just obstruct and hold and really hold the line. Um, so it's about keeping your member accountable and it's about re reminding them that like they actually work for us. They work for the constituent and we can vote them out and people are primarying people already um, people are losing, you know, really important seats. People thought that they were going to be next in line in the Democratic Party, and they're, you know, being primaried and losing to newcomers. Um, so I think that, like, putting some some fire into the fight um, by way of our electoral votes is just so, so important, especially if we are able to hold the line um, through, you know, the November election and making sure that we make every make sure everyone that we know is getting out to the polls and making their votes heard. Um, I think that's just the best thing that we can do. So should Trump's next Supreme Court nominee be confirmed, the Supreme Court will have a 6-3 conservative majority, and one of the GOP's top priorities, as they have stated explicitly many times, is to overturn Roe. Do you consider that a real possibility? I think anything's possible. I think that it is possible. I think that, I mean, a 6-3 court is terrifying, especially with, you know, more liberal justices being old, on the older side um, is terrifying. But I, I think that it's, it's definitely a real threat that people should be concerned about. Um, however, like, also in many places in our country right now, there are so many abortion restrictions in various states that people are already living in a world without Roe. And... It's actually very, it's actually present day for a lot of people and we're finding ways to survive and not saying that we're not going to, you know, that we're not going to fight this as much as we can possibly fight it. Um, but I don't want people to walk away feeling like terrified and helpless and like there's nothing that we can do because there is. 
we're out there in red states that have, you know, one clinic and creating new types of networks and creating new ways and, you know, putting pieces of state legislation like medication abortion that you can do at home. We're like, we're, we're moving and this is a huge threat, but like, we're so resilient and we're like, we will figure it out. We will be fine. And just really, I really just want to make people recognize that for many folks, we just were already there. Um, and it's maybe the time to really start focusing on those states that are super red um, of how to make the situation better and to try out different tactics because we might need to try out those different tactics nationwide one day. I, I agree so much with that. And something I've been thinking a lot about is what happens if Roe is overturned? What happens if civil rights go under further assault? The fact is that abortions will keep happening. Yeah, they've always happened. They've always happened as like for all time. Yeah, and the truth is, and this is something that a lot of liberals have rejected, we cannot accept unjust decisions just because a conservative majority tells us what and what is and is not constitutional. I'm sorry, but I refuse to say that we should have interned Japanese Americans during World War II because the Supreme Court gave it the thumbs up. Yep. I refuse to say that we should maintain a Muslim ban because the Supreme Court says so, you know? Yep. Judicial decisions are not morality, but that does literally mean we are not going to follow the law. That's a very hard thing for liberals to comprehend because we talk so much about process. But when it comes to people's lives, to their safety, to their well-being, to their rights, the fact is that these things are still things we're going to defend. And I'm just curious, especially with Roe, but, but with all civil rights, with all human rights, what is civil disobedience going to look like? Yeah, that's a really, really, really great question that I actually am wondering myself um, in wake of yesterday of like, what is, what does civil disobedience really look like um, beyond um, what we've, like the tactics we've used and the tactics um, like beyond rallying, beyond protesting, um, sometimes like even beyond voting, like what are those civil disobedience tactics? And I think that for me personally, I have, I'm not, I haven't come up with them yet. I'm to be completely honest, I'm in this thought learning moment of like, what is it that we can do, um, that will actually make an impact and leave the people, you know, accountable and, or make people or hold people accountable. Um, I am not a violent person, so I do not go to violence. Um, but, you know, some of my, my initial thought, like I'm, you know, there's, there's a fight or flight kind of person. I'm definitely a flight person. Like I'm 100% honest. I, I, I am that person who's like, instead of like fighting for it or whatever is like over in the corner, like, like crying. That is totally me. Um, and then I like gets, you know, a little bit more confidence and resilience kicks in. Um, but my first instinct is always to like, I want to move, but I want to move like to the middle of the country and like, we're, let's start our own like queer Wakanda out there and like, let's do our own thing 
Um, that's kind of like what I want. I want like that to be the resistance. Let's, let's create our own communities that are safe, that are free from violence, where we raise our, you know, our kids safely and freely. And we have the families that we want and, you know, we're growing our own food. We're creating our own schools. We're teaching the right thing. Like I, I don't see why we can't create the world that we want right here. I think that's really beautiful, and I absolutely agree. So you cover this very well, but maybe if you have anything beyond what you've mentioned, what are the next steps for us? What do our listeners need to do right now? Yeah, I think really, especially after this week, being you know the last week of the Supreme Court session this June, I think we just need to be with each other. Like, this has been rough. This has been, we've been, like, under attack, really, like, actually under attack for the last year and a half, like, directly from our um, administration and now from our Supreme Court and many times from our um, United States Congress. I feel like we need to, like, have some us time, like, to be honest, and, you know, get together, find the people that you love, that you like to be around, and just, like, spend some time together, like create some of your own joy because the joy is like not out there for us right now. Like we need to create it and we need to be with each other and we need to rest for a minute and then start fighting. Um, yes, there are protests that are like, there's a a huge protest happening in DC on, um, Saturday opposing all of the immigration policies. Yes. Go to the protest, protest, but go like, make sure you're with your people. Just be with your people. I feel like is the best thing we can do right now. Where can folks find you online and are there any sites they should look to, to get involved? Yeah, so you can definitely go to my organization's website, which is at www.thetaskforce.org. And you can definitely find me on Twitter at attorney underscore bond. I'm constantly tweeting, (laughs) raging about all of the the dumpster fires that are happening. So please find me there. Um, Also, you might find me someday soon at a yoga studio near you because (laughs) I have start. I've just finished my yoga teacher training and will be teaching yoga somewhere soon in the DMV area. Okay, that's very exciting. Well, thank you so much for coming onto the podcast. I really enjoyed this conversation. Thank you so much for having me. Of course. Now, to our listeners, make sure to follow Millennial Politics on social media, subscribe to our newsletter, and check out our merch at millennialpolitics.co, and stay tuned for the next episode of our podcast. Thanks for listening.